Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. Happy New Year. I missed you guys. Now, I took a week off for the first time in two years from my Full Rigor podcast, and I'm itching to get back. And I'm back with some housekeeping. Now, there are updates on three or four of my previous Full Rigor podcasts because, you know, everything happens in Florida. And first, an update on the fake teen doctor, Dr. Love, who actually was practicing medicine in West Palm Beach. He's back in trouble again. Can you say recidivism? In 2018, Malachi Love Robinson was 18 years old, and he pled guilty to several fraud charges, including grand theft and practicing medicine without a license, after his patients say he claimed to hold several degrees, including a PhD and an MD. He served 21 months at a maximum security lockup outside Fort Myers, then was released, and now... It seems that Dr. Love is back to his old tricks. He's now 23, and he was arrested again last Thursday for fraud and grand theft. The arrest warrant alleges that Love Robinson took more than 10 grand that belonged to a company as part of a scheme. Police say Love Robinson worked for a shipping broker, and he's accused of having clients send money to his personal account instead of the company. And he sent text messages to the company's owner insisting that, quote, he was truly sorry and he'll do everything he can to make it right, according to police. And he says, I don't want to go to jail, but uh, that's what happens to repeat offenders. Now, here's a portion of my podcast about Dr. Love's first arrest after posing as a teen doctor at St. Mary's Hospital in West Palm Beach. We had a case of a kid here in West Palm Beach, Dr. Love. He would actually make rounds around St. Mary's Medical Center, where Serena Williams had her baby, and so did I. And he was wearing a white coat and a stethoscope, and he was a kid. He wasn't a doctor. As a kid, you know, I think it was it's always been my dream, you know, to be a physician. I guess the bigger picture was seeing the smiles, you know, people thinking that you are something that you're not. I 100% regret what, I, what I've done. And the reason being is that because, number one, I've messed my life up a great deal. So that is actually a Florida teenager from right here in West Palm Beach, who police say called himself Dr. Love. He was accused of practicing medicine without a license. He was arrested when he was 18 years old, named Malachi Love Robinson, right here in West Palm Beach, after conducting an undercover operation at a medical office that the teen actually used. He was renting it out and seeing patients. And an undercover officer came in and pretended to be a patient. And when he pretended to be a doctor on the pretend patient, he got cuffed. So authorities say Love Robinson fooled his victims. He had an elaborate website. He had a bio. He, he called himself a well-rounded professional. Apparently, he used electro and psychotherapy to treat patients. So as I said, the undercover PBSO officer was a patient. She acted as a patient. And Love Robinson, she says, gave her a medical exam, offered her medical advice. So the teenager was arrested immediately. He's a teenager. He hasn't even finished high school. So I told you he was walking around the halls of St. Mary's Medical Center, which, by the way, is the best place to give birth here in Palm Beach County. Serena Williams had her baby here. I had my baby there. I think Celine Dion also had one of her children born there. It might have been at Palms West. But I know that President Trump and his then-wife, Marla Maples, gave birth to Tiffany Trump there at St. Mary's Medical Center in 1993. It's the really go-to place to have your baby. Uh, And Love Robinson, apparently, there was a tip that he was caught in a pregnant woman's exam room at St. Mary's Medical Center. And 
when confronted, he said, no, I'm just shadowing doctors here. But he had on the full-on white coat, stethoscope, chart, glasses. He looked like the real deal. Dr. Love. So after that incident at St. Mary's Medical Center, the hospital denied that Love Robinson had ever, the teenager, had ever come into contact with patients, and they declined to press charges. So the police determined no crime had been committed. But after the undercover PBSO deputy got seen by him, they decided to cuff him and pursue charges. So that was in February of 2016, and in January of 2018, Love Robinson accepted a plea deal that would send him to prison for three years. So at the age of 20, he pled guilty to grand theft and practicing medicine without a license, and he was sentenced by the circuit court judge in Palm Beach County. And by the way, Dr. Love is also accused of stealing nearly $43,000 from the business account of a Boynton Beach addiction treatment center where he worked as a program director before he launched his own clinic. So he he did have some background. And the treatment center owner linked him to the thefts through emails on his company-issued computer and told investigators that he wrote her two checks in an attempt to reimburse her. One check bounced, and she found out the payment had been stopped on the other. So after stealing the 43000 from the clinic, he was also accused in a separate case of defrauding an elderly woman, a patient, of $35,000 after examining her for stomach pain. And as if that wasn't enough, in addition to stealing from the clinic and from his patient, Love Robinson was also arrested and jailed for a year in Virginia. He was in a dealership where he was trying to buy a Jaguar. And he told the deputies he had come to Virginia from Florida to buy a car for himself and for his godmother, who he said was with him. He stated that she agreed to co-sign on the loan for the Jag that he was going to purchase. He also admitted that he was out of jail on bond from Florida for practicing medicine without a license. So the deputies then spoke with the elderly lady that was with Mr. Love Robinson. And she said that he was a distant relative of hers through her son's wife, etc., and he considered her to be his godmother. So while she told investigators she didn't feel as if she was in any danger, she was later surprised to learn the teenager used her name and social as a co-signer on the JAG. So when the dealership ran her credit, they found two other loan applications submitted in the last couple of days with her information that she had not completed. They also did a check with her credit card company. It revealed that there had been $1,200 charged to her card the day before for two iPads and a cell phone that she had not purchased. Love Robinson had been bragging to employees of the dealership earlier that day about his new iPads and his phone. They were also seized along with other items at his time of arrest. So in the end, Love Robinson, in addition to being charged as a fake doctor, was charged with identity fraud, false statements to obtain credit, and obtaining money by false pretenses. So he really racked up some crimes before he was even 21. So finally, in September of 2019, the 22-year-old Dr. Love, imprisoned for impersonating a doctor while he was a teenager and stealing from a patient, was freed from custody. And he says he regrets his actions now. I was a young kid that got overly ambitious and just said to hell with the rules and regulations. Well, I guess so. So Malachi Love Robinson, known as Dr. Love, released after about 20 months into his 3.5 year sentence. He was given credit for time served before his sentencing. And get this, he says that he worked very hard in prison. He worked in the kitchen and he served his time at a maximum security prison near Fort Myers. And guess what? Dr. Love still wants to be a doctor. 
have messed my life up, you know, a, a great deal. Do you still want to be a doctor? I do. But it seems the young man will have to put his dreams of becoming a doctor on hold while he possibly serves another prison sentence. We'll keep you updated. Also, Samuel Little, the prolific serial killer who was serving three consecutive life sentences, is dead. Not because he was executed for killing more than 90 people. No, he died at a hospital shortly before 5 a.m. local time last week as well. California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation say that he died at the age of 80. Cause of death not released, but no foul play was suspected. He likely died of complications from diabetes, heart trouble, and other ailments. So... This guy's the most prolific serial killer of all time. Do you think that he should have been executed? And he confessed to strangling 93 people, nearly all women in total across the United States, beginning in Miami in the 1970s and ending in 2005. He had been convicted of at least eight murders, some of which were solved using DNA. Other cases remain open. The FBI deemed Little the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. And again, it all started in Miami. Here's a portion of my podcast on Samuel Little's crimes. May he rest in peace. The first thing I picked up on is how wicked smart he was. This guy smart. is smart. Oh, like genius. Why? Yes, Why do you say that? Oh, well, number one, you know, the photographic memory, his memory for details. So we're talking about convicted murderer, the most prolific killer in the U.S. history, Uh, Samuel Little, he confessed to 93 murders, including several here in South Florida, and law enforcement has confirmed 50. He was finally arrested and jailed in the 2000s for a couple of murders, but he kept saying he was innocent. But then finally, he just opened up this last month or so to the FBI, actually was to a Texas Ranger, and just started talking about all these murders, and he has a photographic memory. So he's able to remember everyone he killed, and he's an artist, and he draws their face. This is one woman that he killed in Florida he remembers. Miami, 1972. She had a short cream, much good. <laughs> cream and red. New Orleans, 1982. Her and sister was two sisters. She had two Covington, Kentucky, 1984. She would let partially conceal by vegetation. Little Rock, Arkansas, in the early 90s. Tell me what that girl looked like. Oh, man, I loved her. I forget her name. Oh, wait, I think it was Ruth. He even remembers the name. I don't, are you kidding me? There's 50 confirmed cases, but a lot of these people aren't identified. They, they haven't been identified. So for a lot of people, there's no closure in these cases. If you go to my Instagram page, Full Rigger Podcast, I posted the drawings he created of his victims there. If you recognize anybody, please contact the FBI. And finally, two decades ago, a Miami jury convicted an Italian filmmaker, Enrico Forte, of murdering an Australian man whose bullet-ridden body was discovered in the sands of Virginia Key in South Florida. Now, Forte still claims innocence, and even though he is serving life in prison in Florida and state courts consistently reject his appeals on his conviction, he's still fighting. Well, now, Forte, who's now 61, may soon be back in his native country, After Governor Ron DeSantis, at the request of the U.S. Department of Justice and the Italian government, conditionally approved his transfer of custody to Italy, a move fiercely opposed by the Miami-Dade prosecutors who convicted him. Such transfers are uncommon but allowed under treaties between the United States and most European countries. 
And the governor's spokeswoman said the transfer was approved following the Italian government's assurance that Mr. Forte would serve the entire remainder of his Florida prison sentence in Italy. Forte is known as the Italian Amanda Knox. She was finally released from prison in Italy after being accused of murder. In this case, they feel that the justice system in the United States went awry. Forty's transfer was made public last week by the Italian foreign minister, Luigi Di Maio. This was on Facebook, but they say that his conviction for murder remains intact. So the Pike murder wasn't the first time, though, Forty made headlines in South Florida. This is really interesting, and I didn't have this part of my first podcast. He had a connection to the Versace murder. Now, when the spree killer Andrew Cunanan was found dead aboard a Miami Beach houseboat in 1997, Forty presented papers showing that he was the boat's latest owner, claiming exclusive film rights. and made thousands of dollars by renting the boat to tabloid TV shows eager to show the final hiding place of Andrew Cunanan, who murdered fashion icon Gianni Versace. Now, I also produced the podcast on the Versace murder. It's episode seven, The Day Fashion Died on South Beach, the true crime story of the execution-style murder of Italian fashion designer Gianni Versace on the front steps of his South Beach mansion in broad daylight. Check it out. But Forty's own movie was never filmed on the houseboat. In fact, it sank just before Pike's murder. Here's a portion of my podcast on Forty and the case against him in the murder of Dale Pike. We're going to talk about the 1998 murder of Dale Pike. It is a true South Florida murder mystery and Enrico Forte, known as Kiko Forte, could be an innocent man wrongly convicted. He has spent the last 20 years in jail in South Florida. So many say that this case is like a reverse engineered case of Amanda Knox. Remember, she was the American student in Italy who was convicted of murdering her roommate in 2007, Meredith Kutcher, a fellow exchange student. She shared her apartment. In 2015, Amanda Knox was definitively acquitted by the Italian Supreme Court. But only after four years she spent in prison, she had been convicted using what's called touch DNA. She was wrongly convicted, but it took four years to figure out that she didn't do it. Either did her boyfriend. So what is touch DNA? They actually find a skin cell. They found it on the knife and on a bra strap hook. And then they extrapolated out, and that's how they convicted her. Oh, yeah, also. Because there was a language barrier, Amanda Knox signed a confession that she really hadn't read because she couldn't understand Italian. So she basically confessed, but she didn't do it. And she was found not guilty eventually. Well, in this case, it's the Italian Amanda Knox. Instead of an American being screwed by the court system in Italy, it's the Italian who attorneys say was screwed by the court system in America. It's involving the Italian Enrico Forte, who came from Italy, Ibiza, Italy. It's spelled with a Z, Ibiza. But it's Ibiza, Italy. And he came to Miami because he wanted to talk to a guy that his father was selling this famous hotel to from Ibiza. And the guy ended up dead. Here is Kiko Forte's attorney, Joe Tacopina. There's no forensic evidence linking Kiko Forte to this crime. None whatsoever. People have made comparisons to this case in Amanda Knox. You don't decide this person is guilty and then look for evidence to back it up. So again, that is Kiko's attorney, Joe Tacopina. He spoke with 48 Hours about the case. So, you know, Amanda Knox was 20 at the time of the murder. She called the police after she returned to her and Kircher's flat. She actually went in, took a shower, and she noticed blood in the bathroom. 
And she's like, oh, what happened here? Then she went back after showering to her boyfriend's. And then when they came back, they found the body. And that's when everything spiraled out of control. And she spent four years trying to exonerate herself. Well, in Italy, the verdict here in the Enrico Forte case is viewed as a miscarriage of justice because of the lack of a valid motive or solid proof. Well, there is a motive. But there's no direct evidence, as Takapina just said, except for a teaspoonful of sand that was eventually found outside of Forti's car on the trailer hitch. And it matched the sand from the scene of where the body was found in Miami. But remember... Enrico Forte was a world champion windsurfer, so there was really good reason to have sand in his car. So really, if that's the only thing you're hinging the case on, that's a pretty weak case. So Dale Pike, who was the victim, was found lying naked, face down, on a quiet stretch of beach on Virginia Key near Key Biscayne. Let me set the scene for you. Virginia Beach is off of the Rickenbacker Causeway. So if you're traveling to Miami and you're on 95 southbound, you're going to go past the Julia Tuttle Causeway, the MacArthur Causeway. Those take you over to Miami Beach. Then you've got downtown Miami. And then when you pass downtown Miami, you get to the Rickenbacker Causeway. And that's going to take you to, there's a restaurant called the Rusty Pelican there. Uh, They also play in Key Biscayne. They used to play the tennis tournament there, the Lipton. And then also you've got Virginia Key there. It's a very quiet, small key, which is a small island attached to the Rickenbacker Causeway. So his body was found, Dale Pike's body was found on this key. It had been dragged through the sand, so a beachgoer saw blood in this sandy trench that led to some bushes, and it was the body was found face down. He had been shot twice in the back of the head with a twenty-two. So the killer or killers actually staged the scene where the body was found so he could be quickly identified. So it pointed to a specific suspect. Enrico Forte, Kiko. So according to Tecapina, there was a boarding pass with Dale's name on it. There was a pendant from the hotel in Ibiza. And then there was a phone calling card with only one phone number on it. And that phone number belonged to Kiko Forte. Forte had just signed a deal with Dale's father, Tony Pike, to buy his destination resort, Pike's Hotel, in Ibiza, Spain. And by the 1990s, that hotel was beginning to lose its reputation and slowly decline in popularity and in 1998 pike had put the hotel up for sale it was worth millions the sons thought but he signed a deal to sell it to the italian tv producer and wind surfer extraordinaire enrico forte in miami so his son anthony dale pike flew to miami to deal with forty in person because tony he was sex crazed and i'll get into what happened at the pike hotel but He actually was diagnosed, Tony, the father, with full-blown AIDS and AIDS dementia. So he was selling the hotel for $1.5 million in 1998. And the son, Dale Pike, thought that his father was in an AIDS-induced fog and undervalued the hotel and therefore got ripped off. So at the time Tony was diagnosed with AIDS, he had asked Dale to help him run Pike's Hotel after Tony became really sick in like 1997. So going back to the beginning in Ibiza, Tony Pike arrived there in 1978. Um, He led a very colorful life. You will not believe it. He had been shipwrecked in the Caribbean. He was a bobsledder and he got in a bobsled accident. He served in the military. 
He drank heavily, and he married and divorced three times, and he was a sex fiend. So in the 1980s, the authorities in Ibiza grew very concerned about wild orgies and drug use that were going on at this hotel. In fact, it was so extensive that Julio Iglesias was one of the people that used to go to the hotel, and he was a close friend of Tony Pike, and he reportedly befriended the police chief, invited him and his wife to the hotel for a lovely dinner, and ever since then, there was no trouble with the law at the hotel. But it was a 15th century stone mansion. It was converted into the infamous hotel in 1978 by British-born Australian playboy Anthony Pike, Tony Pike. And it developed an extremely notorious reputation for hedonism in the 1980s and was a playground for the rich and famous. It was a special place. Now, here is Dale Pike's brother. So Dale Pike's dead. Here's his brother, Brad, talking to 48 Hours about this special place that attracted special people. Frank Zappa, Julio Iglesias, Wham, George Michael, and of course, Freddie Mercury. It was really Spain's version of Vegas. The video for Wham's 1983 hit Club Tropicana was filmed there. And Freddie Mercury, bless his heart, God rest his soul, had his 41st birthday bash there in 1987. And it was one of the most lavish birthday parties ever held in Ibiza. And I love how Freddie Mercury called everyone darling. But anyway... In 1987, Freddie Mercury celebrated his birthday, and several months after then, he discovered that he had contracted AIDS, just like Tony. So Mercury sought much comfort and retreat at the hotel and with his close friend Pike because they both had the same disease. So the party was held on September 5th in 1987. It is described as, quote, the most incredible example of excess the Mediterranean island has ever seen. Ibiza is in an, an island near Spain. And it was the most lavish party even Pike had ever thrown. It had a guest list of 500 celebrities. There were 700 people in total. It included Julio Iglesias, Grace Jones. Remember, she was in the James Bond movie. A View to a Kill in 1985, she actually slept with 007. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Kylie Minogue, which a lot of people don't know who the hell she is, but she's an Australian singer. Anthony Quinn. Bon Jovi, who, you know, has never strayed on his wife. He's like the best husband ever. Boy George, love him. Tony Curtis, no relation. Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. Naomi Campbell, who is apparently a real bitch. And uh, Spandau Ballet, just for grins. And there were thousands of gold and black helium balloons, which reportedly took three days to inflate. And who knows what happened if they released them into the wild, what they did to the environment. But anyway, the cake, the, the first cake collapsed. So they had to make another cake. And the bill, the tab, which included 232 broken glasses, was given to Queen's manager, Jim Beach. I don't know how much it was, but I'm sure it was big coin. So by the 1990s, the hotel had fallen into difficulties and it was in disrepair and it needed to be sold. So Tony Pike brokered this deal with Kiko Forte in Miami so that he could buy the hotel. Well, thanks to medication in November of 1997, Tony was clear minded enough and he traveled to Williams Island. It's an exclusive enclave outside of Miami. He was visiting an old friend. 
Thomas Knott. He's a German expatriate who had a taste for the good life. He would rather drink champagne rather than water, but he couldn't pay for it. So, Knott was convicted of 14 counts of fraud, stealing millions of dollars, and went to Williams Island straight out of a German prison. And he turned up on Williams Island as a high-flying tennis pro. Apparently, he wore a lot of tennis clothes to deceive people. So he met a woman named Chave Mesmer, and he was charming, so she eventually married him to get a green card for him. So it was a sham nuptial, and she quickly had it annulled when she saw his fits of anger. He had a really, really bad temper. So while Tony was visiting Knott, he met Knott's upstairs neighbor, Enrico Forte, and they hit it off. And Forte at the time was really successful. He had contracts with ESPN. He had won a popular quiz show. He produced extreme sports videos. Remember, he was a a windsurfer extraordinaire. He was a mover and a shaker. And he was buying up properties right around Williams Island. And he seemed to be the perfect fit to buy the hotel. So the sales papers had been signed, but Dale Pike and his brother Brad still had questions about this deal. So when Forty went to pick up Dale at the Miami airport on Sunday afternoon, that was February 15th, 1998, Dale's flight was late and Forty said he almost left. He waited for him for two hours and then when he didn't find him, he started paging him. So it would have been like, Dale Pike, white courtesy telephone. Dale Pike, white courtesy telephone. So they started playing this game of telephone tag via the airport intercom system for about an hour and a half. Well, Kiko picked him up and this is what he told police well actually he picked him up at MIA if you've ever been to Miami International Airport it is in the bowels of Miami and you can get off of the wrong exit and roll around and get into a real mess there there was a time when tourists got into a lot of problems in fact there were exit ramp signs to and from Miami International Airport that had like a little sun on it that were tourist friendly because Miami is so confusing a lot of tourists would get off at the wrong exit so the sign would show them where it's tourist friendly because there was an actual license plate that designated that your car was a rental car. I think it had a Y on it. And they would be driving around the bowels of Miami and they were targets because thieves and criminals and carjackers could tell that they were tourists just landed by the rental car. In fact, in 1993, a German tourist, a 39-year-old woman, Barbara Meller, was savagely beaten and killed. She got lost while driving an Alamo rental car in Liberty City shortly after landing at MIA. She was heading to a Miami Beach hotel in the Alamo rental car and was rammed from behind on a road parallel to I-95. And when she got out to check the damage, two men beat her to the ground, stole her purse, and then ran over her head with their car as they fled. And her mother, her six-year-old son, her two-year-old daughter watched in horror from the car. So when Kiko Forte picked up Dale Pike at the airport, Dale said, I need some cigarettes. Do you have any? And well, Kiko didn't smoke. So Kiko took him to a gas station to buy some cigarettes. And when Dale got out of the car, according to Kiko Forte, he went to the phone booth and made a phone call. This is back in 98, so really no cell phones. So when police pulled the phone records from that telephone booth, they came back and said that Kiko had lied that there was absolutely no record of a call that was made from that phone booth on that day at that time. The problem was they subpoenaed the wrong year. And by the time police subpoenaed the correct year, the records were no longer available. So there's no way to ever know who was on the other end of that call. So after he got in the car, he bought his cigarettes. Kiko took him to the Rusty Pelican, which is a restaurant on Virginia Key. 
And when he got out of the car, Kiko saw a white Lexus. Apparently, Dale Pike got into this white Lexus and Kiko saw the man driving. He actually gave police a description of the man behind the wheel. He described him as elegant. He had a hat, sunglasses, a gold chain, a gold watch, wearing white. He gave him a description and they made a sketch. Forty says after he dropped Pike off at the Rusty Pelican, he didn't think any more about him. Because after he picked up Dale Pike at MIA, he was supposed to go to Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport and pick up his wife's father. They are a long distance away up 95. It's a good 45-minute ride. And she was telling she was pregnant at the time. They had two young girls at home. She's like, you got to go pick up my father at Fort Lauderdale Airport. Don't be late by picking up. I don't even know if he told her he was picking up Dale Pike, but she's like, don't be late in picking up my father. So he calls her at about 7.10 after he dropped Dale Pike off, according to him. And he lies to her and says he's on his way to pick up her dad and he's on time and he doesn't say that he's picked up Dale Pike. He lies. So Joe Tecapina, again, the attorney that's representing Kiko Forte, he said he was nervous about the time that Pike was arriving because he had to pick up his father-in-law around the same time. And it's a long ride. It's, it's very stressful. So and traffic in Miami sucks. I was a traffic reporter for 12 years, flew in a helicopter, and it was, man, people in Miami spend half their life in traffic. It's awful. So he picked up Dale, asked to stop to buy cigarettes, made the call from the payphone. He was going to a party with friends, and they were the party that he was going to it was at the Rusty Pelican. It was a party with friends of Thomas Knott. So he was dropped off at the Rusty Pelican, and you're going to hear that name Thomas Knott again because he may be the real killer. We don't know. So again, he got into a white Lexus with people he didn't know, and at 716... Kiko called his wife, lied to her about what he was doing. Then he picked up her father at the airport. Now, Dale's body was found 24 hours later on Virginia Key near the Rusty Pelican. That's where he dropped him off. And Forty says that he heard about the news about Dale's murder on Wednesday and that Tony was flying into Miami. And he was confused. He was still in shock. And he spent the night trying to locate where Tony Pike was. But the police had spirited Tony away and they wanted to know more about Dale's trip and the hotel deal. And they certainly were convinced that the deal with the hotel and the purchase of the hotel was the impetus for the killing. Here's what Kiko's brother told 48 Hours. This is Brad. It just didn't feel right. Dale wanted to go and see this guy face to face. All I knew that my brother was going over there for the deal. So it's really like it was the deal that created the death. So Forty says he didn't know any of this when he reached out to police on Thursday. He thought it was the right thing to do, but uh, he was walking into a hornet's nest because uh, the police were ready to pounce. They were suspicious of him and the hotel deal, and they tried to trick him. They suggested Tony also might be dead. So his attorney, Joe Tacopina, says the police lied intentionally to Kiko. And what Kiko thought was, oh, my God, I was in Miami. I picked up Dale. He's dead. These guys think I killed them both. So he panicked and he told him that he, in fact, did not pick up Dale Pike. So when asked, when did you actually tell them that you picked up Dale Pike? He said as soon as he had the opportunity. But detectives say Forty only admitted to picking up Dale after they confronted him with the airport paging records, proving that he and Dale had made contact. And Forty says that's a complete lie and that the lie the police were telling was much bigger than the lie he told that he didn't pick Pike up from the airport. 
He says he came clean on everything. He told the cops all he knew about the Pike family and 40 pointed investigators to the longtime friend of Anthony Pike's Thomas Knott and that Thomas Knott was stealing money left and right from Anthony Pike. The police went to find Knott, but by then he had vanished. And the former wife said she wasn't surprised that Knott had vanished when Dale Pike's body was found. And Takapina says with 100% certainty, there wasn't any motive for Kiko Forte to kill Pike, but there was plenty of motive for Thomas Knott. But cops caught up with Knott days later in downtown Miami, and Knott told police Forty had his own motive, and he said that Dale's concerns about the hotel sale would ruin Forty's deal. So Knott made a very compelling case, apparently, that Kiko must have killed Pike, and Kiko was trying to swindle him from the hotel. Police had enough evidence to charge both men with fraud, not for running up $90,000 on Tony Pike's credit cards, and 40 for allegedly trying to swindle Tony out of the hotel. But for the Miami police, 40 was the prime suspect, and the police were determined early on that it was Kiko and Kiko alone. And after all, 40 was the last known person to see Dale Pike. Remember that? And he lied to police about picking him up at the airport and his wife. And not had something 40 did not. He had an alibi. He was hosting a dinner that night. He had a dinner party at his little apartment, so there were a lot of people in that area at that particular time. Gave him a lot of witnesses for an alibi. So the alibi clears Thomas Knott, but then the timeline should clear 40. There isn't enough time for 40 to pick up Dale, murder him, and then meet his father-in-law in 90 minutes at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. He could not be the trigger man. But they didn't accuse Kiko of being the gunman, the trigger man, or the shooter. They don't accuse him of that. They say that he was an acting accomplice with someone else with whom they had no idea, but there was someone else. So even if 40 wasn't the trigger man, prosecutors decided they could prove that he had a role in Dale's murder. And prosecutors cut a deal with Knott to testify against 40, even though the convicted con man from Germany had failed three polygraph tests. In October of 1999, they announced that they had critical physical evidence linking 40 to the crime. Of course, that evidence wasn't DNA or fingerprints. It was the grains of sand, less than a teaspoon, that were found in his trailer hitch. Well, if he wasn't the trigger man and he wasn't the guy that killed Pike and left him naked on Virginia Key on the beach, how would the grains of sand have gotten into his trailer hitch if he wasn't even at the beach to commit the killing? And 40's murder trial in 2000, prosecutors poured over blow-ups of microscopic images of these sand particles with their experts saying that the grains definitely came from Virginia Key. But a state pathologist did provide damning testimony as well based on the undigested food in Dale Pike's stomach that he likely ate on the airplane. The pathologist said the time of death was consistent with the time between 6 p.m. and 7.16 when Dale Pike was with 40 and when Knott was at home having the dinner party. Well, according to pathologists, that's kind of a big mistake that the defense didn't call their own pathologist because it's very difficult to pinpoint an exact time just on stomach contents. Pathologists have known for decades that people simply digest food at different rates, and you cannot pinpoint the time of death to the minute in this way. And also, one pathologist believed that the lack of animal or bug bites on the body and the state of decomposition indicated that Dale Pike could have died much later or even the following day when Forty would have had an alibi of his own. But prosecutors stuck to that timeline. They highlighted the 716 phone call that Forty made to his wife. Remember, he was telling her that he, he had picked up her dad and he was supposedly heading north to pick up the father. Cell phone tower instead places Forty going in the opposite direction. 
So if he has a cell phone, why did Dale Pike have to get out of the car and make a call on a payphone? Anyway, prosecutors, without any proof, speculated that Forty was on his way to get rid of evidence. The defense countered that there were way too many variables, including the weather, to determine why one tower picked up a call and not another. And they tried to offer not as the best suspect, but it didn't work. Every time they tried to bring him up, oh, he's not the one on trial here is what they said. Ultimately, prosecutors decided to not call the convicted con man, Thomas Knott. And on June 15, 2000, the case went to the jury. So police did arrest and question Tony Pike's longtime friend and Forte's neighbor, Thomas Knott. And they later convicted him of running up $90,000 on Tony Pike's credit cards. So there's a motive there. So in June of 2000... Forte was convicted of murdering Anthony Dale Pike in Miami. So that's Dale, not Tony. So Tony Pike died of cancer at age 85. He had totally outlived the prognosis of five years when he was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS in 1995. Pike's hotel, valued at five million bucks, was later finally sold in 2008. Forty is now serving a life prison sentence at the Everglades Correctional Institution. It's a level five security prison in unincorporated Miami-Dade. It was a mental health facility that was converted into a major correctional institution in 1995. So it was just open as a prison when he actually showed up there. Is he guilty of murder or is he not? Joe Tacopina has his hands full as his defense attorney. So Dale and Tony Pike are dead. And Enrico Forti, once a sports champion windsurfer who traveled all over the world today, is still restricted to a six by eight foot steel and brick prison cell. He says only his body is behind bars. He apparently is able to travel in his mind. He says he does that a lot, and that's his way to survive in prison. So Kiko Forte will be traveling physically to Italy, where he will then be placed again behind bars, and then he can do some more mental traveling. He's kind of like Albert Camus' L'Etranger. Quoi? The 1942 novel by the French author Albert Camus that cites examples of his philosophy, absurdism, and existentialism. Huh? Mon Dieu. That wraps up Full Rigor for this episode. I'm Karen Curtis. Thanks for joining me. Well, that wraps up this first episode of Full Rigor in the year 2021. I'll be back next week with some fresh true crime out of South Florida. Make sure you subscribe, download, and also follow me on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. Until next time, thanks for joining me. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank. Podcasting is my favorite way to connect with people, but traveling comes in at a close second. Travel lovers, meet the U.S. Bank Altitude Connect Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you'll get four times points on travel, including gas and EV charging stations, and five times points on prepaid hotels and car rentals when you book directly through the Altitude Reward Center. And no matter where in the world you are, you'll get two times points on groceries, dining, and streaming, with a $30 annual credit for streaming services, too. Visit usbank.com slash altitude connect to apply and learn how you can earn 50,000 bonus points. You deserve a credit card with more and more travel rewards. Apply to become an Altitude Connect cardholder at usbank.com slash altitude connect. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. Some restrictions may apply. 
Mile 1298. You're new to this whole EV thing, but those range fears, way overblown, because your all-electric Hyundai Ioniq 5 gets you to work and back all week on a single charge. When it comes to embracing change, we're thinking of every mile. Hyundai, it's your journey. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. 2023 Ioniq 5 rear-wheel drive has an EPA-estimated driving range of up to 303 miles. Actual range will vary with options, driving conditions, and habits, vehicle and batteries condition, and other factors. Available in limited quantities in select states only.